So if this is the first time you're here, or uh, maybe the first time you've been in a while, you might not understand why we're talking so much about Jewish people today. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a distinct section within this book about the grace of God that specifically deals with the Jewish people. Now remember, the early church consisted of Jewish people and non-Jewish people, or Gentiles. And the challenge, and as I asked myself, God, why did you include? Why did Paul write Romans 9, 10, and 11? What was he trying to say to the church in Rome? Why was it so important for them to understand the nature of their relationship? And why did you write this? And I realized that, you know, just like in church today, you've got people from vastly different cultural backgrounds, vastly different places, and there's this always this challenge of prejudice. So Paul is writing so that there's no prejudice between Jew and Gentile. He's already given a warning to the Jews. Hey, Jews, be careful not to be prejudiced against the Gentiles because the Jews felt like the non-Jews were not only uncultured, but they were just flat-out immoral pagan partiers. And how could God ever want anything to do with them? How could a God who is holy ever have anything to do with such people as that? Well, and now he's going to deal with the converse. He's going to deal with the potential for anti-Semitism in the early church because the Gentile Christians could say, well, you Jews, you're the ones who killed Jesus. If Peter preached that his first sermon, you killed the Prince of Life. And so the Gentile could easily look down on the Jew and say, well, you guys said you killed the Messiah. You got no place with God. And you see how division, Satan loves to bring division. And so Paul, really ministering to both groups of people, chapter 11, showing that God actually has a tremendous plan for the Jews and for why they rejected Messiah and what God is doing through that. None of this was a surprise to God. None of this was outside of his plan. Everything is working just according to God's plan. And Paul's going to show that as we go through Romans and finish up chapter 11. So we'll pick up in verse 7. Paul has just talked about, yes, the Jews have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but not all Jews had. And we've read this through the book of Acts. Not every Jew, there were Jews that got saved, that they recognized Jesus as Messiah and they accepted him, the grace of God, and that was good. But as a nation, they had rejected Jesus. And so the rejection wasn't total. It was just partial. So verse 7 says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seek, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. That's a quote from Isaiah 29. And then Psalm 69, David said, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So Paul, always scriptural in his approach, takes these two Old Testament passages and shows that the blindness of rejecting Israel was predicted way back in the Old Testament. This is not new. This is not surprising. And so look what Paul says. He says, first, there were those that Israel was looking for something. Israel as a nation was looking for something. They were looking for a right relationship with God. But the problem was, They rejected Jesus because they sought a relationship with God through their own hard work, through their own performance and through keeping rituals and keeping traditions. And the traditions and the rituals became the center of everything. And God was left out. What God wanted was 
mercy and humility and love and justice. And they forgot about that stuff. They took advantage of people and became all about their own glory and keeping their own traditions at all costs. And what they saw at this relationship with God, what happened? Paul said they missed it because they sought it their own way. They wanted to come to God the way that they wanted to come to God. And so they missed it. But there were some that obtained it and the ones that didn't. What was the problem? You might have asked. Paul might be answering the question. How could Israel have been so blind? Well, Paul tells us they were blinded. And notice that's a, well, you wouldn't notice that. You can't read it in the Greek, but it's passive. That means it's not something they did to themselves. That means it's something that was done to them. And maybe this will be a little more clear if I tell you that the word blinded is one translation, but the word more properly means calloused. Callous. You know anybody who you would just say they're so calloused? Have you ever had a callus? You know what happens when you get rubbed in a certain place over and over again? It creates the skin hardens there and it loses its sensitivity and it doesn't feel anymore. So the idea is that they become hard and they become insensitive. They would hear, but they wouldn't hear. You ever know anybody like that? They hear the words that you're saying, but they refuse to believe it. You see, just like we have physical organs that sense our five senses, touch and and hearing and vision and those things, there are those same things spiritually. So what Paul says is God has given them a spirit of stupor. That's an interesting word because it just means to to tingle or to prick. You know that feeling when you wake up in the morning and you've slept on your arm all night and your hand's asleep and you're just like, you know, my hand is asleep and it's all tingly and it doesn't really feel right. It doesn't sense right. So that's why he says it's like waking up in the morning and your hands asleep or your legs asleep. That's how Israel had become. They'd become insensitive. Their hearts had become hard. Eyes, Their eyes couldn't see and their ears wouldn't hear anymore because they'd heard the word. How does God harden heart? Maybe you've heard it, that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So when the word is preached, some hearts melt. Like even here today, the word of God goes out and some people hear it and they just humble themselves and respond and get saved. Or they hear what God is saying and they say, oh, I need that. I'm doing that wrong. Or I hear what God is saying and I know what he wants me to do. But other people just justify themselves and they just push it away. They don't want to hear it. And it's the same word, right? How can the same word of God bring these two radically different responses? One person hears it and melts. And another person hears it and just gets more stubborn and more hard. And the more they hear it, the more stubborn they get. Well, that's what happened to Israel. He says, look, let their table become a snare and a trap. In other words, they had this place of privilege and fellowship with God historically. And they had all these traditions and all this heritage. And they began to trust in their heritage and not God. And the very privilege that they had led them to feel entitled. And they looked down on other people. And it became a trap. Do you think we're in danger of that? Do you think sometimes that can be a danger in the church? You know, Wednesday night is going to be our communion service, and it's easy to just go through the motions and say, you know, part of the church, I show up when I have to show up. I got all this privilege now. We're the church. And we feel entitled to now God's chosen us, and we're in his plan. And it's easy to become blinded by those things. And to think, hey, we're doing good, we're okay. When really that very place of privilege and entitlement 
leads you to kind of soften up or become insensitive to what God is trying to say. You see, forget about the communion table if you don't know the lamb. Because we can go through the rituals, we can go through the emotions, we can go through the motions. But unless we recognize that at the bottom of this is Jesus. The communion only has meaning if it points to Jesus for you. And if our ears become dull to what he says, the communion service won't help you. If you don't want Jesus, then it doesn't matter if you've been baptized or dunked in water or you've participated in a Eucharist ceremony. Those things don't save us. But sometimes they give us the impression that we've been saved. Do you see what I'm saying? Sometimes there's a difference between hearing the word of God and believing it. The danger of listening to sermons is you mistake having heard the word for having believed it. And so that's what Paul says. This is their problem. Their eyes are darkened so that they do not see and they bow down their back always like somebody grappling around in the darkness looking for something. So Paul presents this problem, the blindness, the insensitiveness, the rejection of Israel toward God. So then the question among the non-Jewish believers in the church, because the church is Jew and Gentile, they might say, well, maybe they had their chance. Maybe the Jews had their chance. God came to them. The word was preached to them. They rejected it. Then they can get what they deserve. God is done with the Jews. Well, Paul says in verse 11, I say then, have they, meaning the Jews, stumbled that they should fall? You know, sometimes you can trip and then you look back to see what it was that tripped you and you look around to see who saw you trip. You stumble, but you keep going. But sometimes you trip and you fall and you're out. And so Paul uses the analogy of a race. And it's as if the Jews had been running this race and the Gentiles way back there somewhere in the race and the Jews stumble as they're running. You know, they're doing the the 800 meter run, you know, and they, they stumble. And Paul says, well, maybe everybody's watching as the Jews as a nation stumble. Are they out? Are they disqualified? Are they going to give up? Are they going to, you know, just sit there and cry? And then the Gentiles are going to come and surge ahead. Are the Jews out or not? Well, look what he says. Certainly not. No, the Jews have stumbled, but not that they would be disqualified totally or that they would be out of the race completely, watch what happens. He says, but through their fall, when the Jews stumbled, what happened to provoke them to jealousy, salvation came to the Gentiles. Now, watch how this works. I have a couple of verses here just by way of example from the book of Acts. You know, in the book of Acts, we see the gospel, we see Pentecost and the Spirit being poured out, and we see Peter going out, and we see the disciples going out, and we see Paul traveling with Barnabas and Silas, and they're spreading the gospel all over the world. And some Jews are being saved, but many are rejecting. This is a church in Antioch, Acts chapter 13. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things, the things of Jesus, on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, that's the next Saturday when they would gather, Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly and said, We had to speak the word of God to you first, to the Jew first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. 
So the word comes to the Jew. The Jew rejects it. They abusive toward Paul. And they says, fine, we're going to take it to someone who wants to hear. Do you remember Jesus telling the parable of the wedding feast and the invitations go out? Then there's the second day, the follow-up invitation was common those days. To, hey, come to the wedding feast and my son's getting married. I want everybody to come. And, and well, people made excuses. Well, we can't come because of this and we can't come because of that. And so the master of the feast, he wants his feast to be filled. He wants the banquet to be filled. So he says to his servants, go out into the highways and the byways and find the lame and the maimed and the blind and bring them in. Well, that's us. That's the description of us. So the word, the invitation went out to the Jews, but they had excuses and they didn't come. They were invited, but they didn't enter in. So the word went out to the Gentiles, the lame and the maimed and everyone else to invite them in. So that's the idea that's being said here. The second one I'll give you is from the book of Acts chapter 18. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. In other words, I did what I was supposed to do. I gave you the message. If you reject it, you're responsible. He says, I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go. Where do you think he's going to go? To the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue, watch this, and went next door to the house of Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, so the Jewish synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who believed were baptized. So did you get the picture? Paul goes to the synagogue. He preaches Jesus. They are abusive toward him. He says, fine, your blood's going to be on your own head. You're responsible for your own destiny then. I'm going to go. And he starts a Bible study right next door. So the people in the synagogue are hearing now all this praise and worship music, you know, guitars playing, people are coming in and the word is being preached and people are rejoicing and they're hugging each other and there's a lot of love. There's a whole kind of thing that tradition without God can never produce. Tradition without God can't produce that stuff. Legalism doesn't produce that kind of life. Legalism doesn't transform. Legalism doesn't produce that kind of freedom in the Lord. And so he goes right next door and sets up a Bible study, right? So they can see, so that they're exposed to watching what the Spirit of God can do apart from law, just by the grace of God. So I hope that kind of sets the stage for what Paul is saying here. This race, they're provoked to, literally the word is rivalry. Maybe you've gone to the gym by yourself, or maybe you've gone out for a run by yourself. You ever have a hard time getting motivated that way? You're all alone and you're out there running and you're not really pushing yourself very hard. But ah, if somebody comes along to run with you or to ride with you or to work out with you, then all of a sudden there's a little bit of rivalry going on and it pushes you harder. So Paul says, here's the deal. Here's why Israel was hardened. Here's why they stumbled. Because they stumbled, the Gentiles could surge forth. And the idea is that when the Jews see the non-Jews, When they see the Gentiles enjoying the Lord, enjoying a closeness with the Lord, when they see transformed homes and transformed lives and the power of the Spirit at work, that they should go, wow, we need to get up and go after that. And all of a sudden they rejoin the race, now spurred on to rivalry by the testimony of what God is doing among Gentiles before they keep the Sabbath, before they know what tithing is, before they go through the whole circumcision and become Jews, just right where they are. That's the picture Paul is painting. And he says, verse 12, now if their fall is riches for the world, and it has been, 
and their failure riches for the Gentiles, and it has been, then how much more their fullness? I mean, when they get back into the race and they become what God always wanted them to become, then that's going to be a real reason to rejoice. When they enter the race and they surge back ahead. So he says, verse 13, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So Paul says, I'm going to make a big deal out of my ministry. I want everybody to know what God is doing among the Gentile world. The ex-pagans, the ex-immoral people that are now, God has opened his invitation. This is us, right? I mean, the fact that the Jews rejected sends the message of Jesus Christ to the world and us, when we were in our partying days or in our immoral days, we heard it. That's why we're here. We responded. And Paul is making sure that the Gentiles, that we know that this was a real blessing. Whether you like it or not, Christianity has Jewish roots. And Paul's going to say that in just a minute. Was this a surprise to God? Was this something that God had plan B? No, 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 no. This is his plan all along. Always has been his plan. And Paul says, I want to provoke them to jealousy. Now, some of you know that there's two responses to jealousy, right? One of them is anger and further rejection. You ever get jealous of somebody and you just get angry about them and you don't want to talk to them? You know, you're just upset with them because you want what they have, but you feel like you can't have it. And so you're angry and you feel slighted by that. You don't want to talk about them, don't want to hear about them, don't want to rejoice with them. But then the other response to jealousy is to say, hey, I want what they have. And you have to humble yourself and say, how can I have what you have? How can I enjoy what you enjoy? And so Paul says, I want to provoke them. He said, I want to provoke them. I want to nudge them a little bit to see what we have. Again, this is the question we're asking. Is the kind of life that you have, is it something that other people would look at and go, I want that? Unfortunately, I fear that too much of the church has gone in two different directions. Half the church has been jealous of what the Jews had in legalism. Half the church has fallen back into law. It's like, why would we do that? Why would we reject this freedom, this liberty in Christ, where it's not about all the rules and regulations, just enjoying a relationship with God where we can come to and pray and discuss with God and talk to Him and have this closeness with Him anytime we want. And half the church has gone that way. The other half of the church has gone toward the world, jealous of the world. Why would we want to become like the world? And so I'm not sure how we're doing with this. As a matter of fact, anti-Semitism, you know what anti-Semitism is, right? It's being against or prejudiced against the Jews or the things of the Jews. Shouldn't it be like anti-Judaism? Where does this word anti-Semitism come from? Well, Shem was the oldest son of Noah, from whom the Jews descended. But in the Greek and Latin Bibles, they don't really have the words for the sounds in the Hebrew. So Shem becomes Sem, S-E-M. And that's why you get anti-Semitism. Just a little piece of free information so you understand when you hear anti-Semitic, what it means is anti-Shem or anti-the lineage of the Jew through Shem, the oldest son of Noah. And it means anti-Judaism, anti-Jew. Now, this is very common and understood. We even still today wrestle with groups that are anti-Semitic. We understood the Holocaust and all the atrocities with that. But maybe you didn't know that for centuries, the church was anti-Semitic. Did you know that? 
This is from one of the church fathers, a guy named John Chrysostom. He was known as the golden tongue preacher. This guy could preach down heaven. But because in some of the early church days, Jesus had been stripped of his Jewishness, all the preaching was allegorical. I mean, this is what it says, but it really means this. And with that came this understanding and this anti-Semitism, this move against Judaism. So here's what he wrote in a sermon called the first homily against the Jews. He said, the synagogue is worse than a brothel and a drinking shop. It is a den of scoundrels, a temple of demons, the cavern of devils, a criminal assembly of the assassins of Christ. I hate the Jews. It is the duty of all Christians to hate the Jew. Now, don't think it ended with John Chrysostom. That was in 354 to 530 AD is when he lived. But did you know that much of the Holocaust was defended from the writings of a man named Martin Luther? Yes, Martin Luther, the pinnacle of the Protestant Reformation, Hitler and Hitler's people used something that he said and attitudes, erroneous attitudes that he had to defend anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. This is what Luther wrote in a work called on Jews and their lies. He wrote, their private houses must be destroyed and devastated. They could be lodged in stable. Let the magistrates burn their synagogues. Let them be forced to work. We will be compelled to expel them like dogs in order not to expose ourselves to incurring divine wrath and eternal damnation from the Jews and their lies. We are at fault in not playing them. That's from Martin Luther. And this Again, Martin Luther being a German theologian, this travels on through Germany and through some of the German attitudes and then ends up finding its way to a defense of what happened under Hitler during the Holocaust. Is that surprising to you? You've never heard that before, have you? Well, you can check me on that, but I'll tell you what. Here's the important thing. We study the entirety of the Word of God. Because when you study Romans chapter 11, you have a hard time having that kind of attitude toward Jewish people. You can't be a Bible-believing, Christ-following Christian and hate the Jews primarily because Jesus is Jewish and the Jews are God's chosen people. So we've been fortunate to cultivate through some of our ministries that are happening, uh, Shevet Akim going to Israel to minister there and our trip to Israel as a group to become more familiar with Jewish culture and don't think this is just something for the past. You want to know what's going on in the world? Keep your eyes on Jerusalem. I mean, when we went to Jerusalem last time, when we went to Israel, again, every time we go, everybody, oh, don't go. It's too dangerous. There's always something happening in Jerusalem, right? And this time it was the embassy being moved by our government to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. And everybody's up in arms about that. But look, the promises that God made to Abraham, we're going to find they're irrevocable. And one of those promises is, I will bless those that bless you, Abraham, and I will curse those that curse you. So you want to know what's going on in the world? Keep your eyes on Jerusalem. Keep your eyes on the Jews. So Paul is really going out of his way to bring unity, to foster unity between Jew and Gentile in the church. The great challenge for the church is everything in us humanly wants to divide. It takes an, believe me, it takes an act of God to keep a community unified. Amen to that? I mean, everything, we our pride, our personal preferences, everything in us wants to cause us to divide. Well, someone hurt me, I'm leaving. Someone did this, well, we're leaving. Everything in us wants to, boom, divide. And look, relationships in communities is a skill that culturally we're getting much worse at. And so Paul is going out of his way, and we're reading now Romans chapter 11, which most churches will never touch. And so it's no wonder that in your life, if you don't go through the whole Bible, 
you may develop erroneous attitudes, prejudices, and behaviors because you've chosen to be ignorant. But as you read the whole Bible, you're exposed to things. you got to go, wow, I had a bad attitude about that. You ever find that God corrects some bad attitude you've had as you've read his word? And all of a sudden you go, ah, oh. I said, I have that attitude. It's a bad attitude. And then you got to pray, Lord, correct that attitude. So hopefully that's one thing you take away from this today. So now he's going to give some other examples. He's going to give an example from horticulture. Verse 16, he says, if the first fruit is holy, then the lump is also holy. So the lump is a lump of dough. And he's saying, look, as you bring your sacrifice, your dough, your offering to the Lord, then you cut a part of it off and you offer that to the Lord and the Lord accepts that. And by accepting that, and that's given to the priests, then the whole lump of dough is all sacred, it's all dedicated to God. The first part, the representative part, dictates the holiness of the whole thing. And the same thing works for trees. Let's say you're going to plant a tree and you got this little root ball, a little sapling, and you go to your yard and you say, Lord, I'm going to dedicate this tree to you. And you dedicate it to the Lord, you put it in the ground. And because that root is holy, dedicated to God, then all the branches that come off of that are dedicated to God. And it's a principle that they're familiar with. And he says it right here, if the first fruit is holy, then the lump is holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, using that as an example, the root that we're talking about here, the example, the illustration is, the root is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers that God cultivated. You know, the existence of the Jewish people is the proof of the existence of God because they weren't a people till God made them a people through Abraham. And he's the father of faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So out of that root, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob grows this tree. And off that tree come these branches called the Jews, the tribes of Israel. Now, here's the problem, remember? They were hardened, and the question is, is God done with them? Well, Paul explains that. He says, and if some of the branches were broken off, those that rejected Jesus, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. So again, Paul brings it down to saying, hey, we have to be shown not to become boastful ourselves that what we have is a privilege that comes from the heritage of the Jews. And so it's easy in their day and in our day to become very negative about Jewish people and about the Jewish nation. And instead he says, hey, we need to be careful. Why? Because the root grew up, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we were like from this wild tree. That's how we're defined. We were like a wild tree. Anybody here wild in their teenage years or still? <laughs> We're like a wild tree, man, not pruned, not cultivated, just growing, going wherever. Was that your life? That was my life. I mean, just going, just doing whatever came natural, just doing whatever I felt like doing, just growing wild. And then God took me and he grafted me in. By the way, I watched some things on this. I read some articles. You can graft in to one tree, one rootstock, all kinds of different fruit. There's one guy who's got a tree that bears 40 different kinds of fruit. He calls it his fruit salad tree. I mean, peaches and plums and cherries and almonds, all in one tree. Because they get grafted. Now the branch gets cut off. The branch dies unless it gets stuck back into something that will give it life and support it. So this guy has this 40 different fruits all growing. Just like my life, I was wild, growing wild, but then I got plugged in by God. You don't graft yourself in. I got plugged into Abraham, the father of faith. 
And by faith, I got joined in with this whole heritage that's called Judaism. And that's where I am. And that's why I'm here. And that's why you're here. So some got cut out. The wild ones got grafted in among them. And then we got to partake of all the goodness of God. All the abundance of the things of God. And he says, so don't boast. But if you do boast, remember you don't support the root, but the root supports you. See, what we have all stems out of, you could say, pun intended, stems out of what God did through Abraham and the offer. Look, the Jews wanted to come to God their own way. They wanted to come by their works, and God said there's only one way to come, and that's perfection. There's only one way to be in a right relationship with God, and that's perfection. And the only way to have perfection, God said, is I'm going to offer it to you as a gift. I'm going to offer you perfection as a gift because you're forgiven and you're justified through my son, Jesus Christ. You want to work for it? Go ahead, but you're going to miss it. See, they sought that, but they missed it. And so we're grafted into Abraham, the father of faith. Now watch what he says. He says, verse 19, you will say then, he anticipates their response, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. I mean, that must make me something special if God chose me. We've been chosen by God. You know that, right? You didn't just show up here by accident. God chose you before you were born. All you did was walk into the very thing that he had chosen for you. So you can try to have this feeling like, well, I must be special because God chose me and you'd be right. That's the only thing in the world that makes you special. So many people run around trying to validate their existence by becoming what they do. I am defined by what I do. I am defined by these things that my work or my recreation or whatever, and it'll never work. The only thing that really gives you value and worth is that God thought you were valuable enough to give his son for you. And he chose you. He loved you. That love, the love of God, unearned by you, is what gives you eternal and immeasurable value. Once you know that, you can live. And so he says, you're right. Well said, verse 20. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. They were broken off because they did not trust God. God for their salvation. They thought their salvation was based on them keeping a specific set of rules and rituals. And they missed it. And that's why they were cut off. You can't have a relationship where there's not trust. They were broken off. Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Let's go on a little farther and then we'll talk about this. Therefore, he says, verse 22, consider the goodness and the severity of God. Now, we have a farm with a bunch of fruit trees. And for years, I had always been scared to prune them. I was always scared I was going to hurt them. But they were getting diseased and we never got any fruit from them. They were growing all wild. And a couple years ago, I read a couple articles, just enough articles to make me dangerous. And I went out with my loppers and a ladder. And I said, man, I'm going to go to town. And I had to be pretty severe on these fruit trees because I had never pruned them. And so it took a little bit of severity of cutting things off. Isn't that what Jesus does in our lives too? Isn't that what John 15 says? I am the vine, you are the branches. Any branch in me that does not bear fruit, what do I do with it? I cut it off. And even the ones that do bear fruit, what do I do with them? I prune them so that they can bear more fruit. So this idea of gardening is pervasive in the Bible. And so You go out there to prune the fruit trees. I had to be severe. And so there's this part of God that is severe, that delineates a line. There's a line here. So 
Don't we love being casual? I mean, I was watching a guy come in this morning just in shorts and flip-flops. I love being casual. Isn't it great that we can do that? But the danger is we can fall into the same track of then taking our relationship with God way too casually. We have to be careful on the other side that because, hey, we're the church and we're casual and we're saved by grace and we got the Holy Spirit, it's so easy to then to take that for granted and let our liberty be a place where now we have this freedom now to sin casually. And he says to the Gentiles, just like he says to us today, be careful because you can find yourself in the same place that the Jews found themselves. Pretty soon you turn around and God's not part of your life anymore. And pretty soon there's no fruit. And that's because you're not part of the vine anymore. Let me just clarify this because this deals with security and all that. My security is not in my performance. Look, if you abide in the vine, that's, that's it. You just stay connected to Jesus. You have eternal security. But if you begin to trust in something else or go somewhere else, then I cannot guarantee you that eternal security. And I don't think Paul does that either. Do you? He says to the Gentiles, just like you and I, he says, be careful. You should have fear. God did not spare the natural branches. He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity. He cut them out. But toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Can I make a suggestion? Continue in the goodness of God. Keep yourself, Jude says, in the love of God. Stay under the spout where the glory pours out, as they say. Don't walk away. Finish strong. Stay with the Lord. That doesn't mean that you're going to have some days where you're feeling more faithful than others. This is the idea that I've got baptized. I'm coming to church. I'm involved with the life of God. And that's where I'm staying. Yeah, we got days where we're more faithful than others. We got days where we're stronger than others. But the general direction of your life and the general testimony of your life should be that I am walking with God on some level or another. And if that's the case, if you can still call Jesus your Lord, then you got nothing to worry about. It's his sacrifice that you depend on. So we continue in the goodness of God. He says, otherwise, you also will be cut off. Real sobering for the Gentile Christians in that day, right? Don't be so secure because your security may become your insecurity. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So look, he says, you and I, we're like wild branches. It was not natural. God did what was unnatural. He took a wild branch, put it into this wonderfully cultivated olive tree that starts with faith that began with Abraham. And that was unnatural. But now the Jews who've been cut off how much easier for God to take that branch that came from that tree initially and to put it back into the tree it was initially from in the first place. It's a very natural thing for Jews to believe in Jesus. It couldn't be any more natural. And God will. Is he done with the Jews? No, God is going to graft them back in. When is this going to happen? How does this happen? Verse 25 says, I don't desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Hey, praise the Lord, Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna. Guess what? You are no longer ignorant of the mystery of the craziness of the Jewish heritage in the past and what God is going to do with the Jews in the future. Tell me you now know God is not done with the Jews. 
And now we've learned a few things today, right? So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Hey, Paul, we read Romans 11.25. We are not ignorant. Here's the reason that blindness in part has happened to Israel only for a certain time. He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this situation with the hardness, the blindness, the callousness of Israel, that was purposeful. It was for your benefit. And once God has achieved what he wants to achieve and the last Gentile gets saved, then God will turn back his plan to the Jewish nation. And that's what he says now, verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. At that point, then Israel as a nation will see Jesus. God will open their eyes. Zechariah tells us they'll see him when he comes and they'll see the nail marks in his hands and they'll say, where did you get those? And I'll say, I got him in the house of my friends and their eyes will be opened and they'll see Jesus for who he is, their Messiah as a nation. Not every individual Jew, but nationally speaking. And did you notice one other thing? How long until this happens? Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. God knows when that last person is going to be saved. And so there's always that chance that sitting right here this morning, the last Gentile could be right here, could be you. So if that's you, get saved today so we can get out of here. Stop holding us up. Lay it down, surrender. We can all go home. That's God's plan. As it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take their sins away. So just as their hardness had been predicted in the Old Testament, so has their ultimate salvation been predicted in the Old Testament. Concerning the gospel, a couple of final matters here. Concerning the gospel, their enemies, for your sake, their being enemies, open the door for us. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God does not revoke his promises. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are those promises still effective? Including that one about, I bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you? Say yes, church. Absolutely, that's still not revocable. God made a promise to Israel, and he's going to keep it. For as you were once disobedient to God, anybody disobedient to God in one time in their life? Yes, the same way you were disobedient to God, yet you obtained mercy. You got it because they were disobedient to God. And even so, because they were disobedient, now that the same mercy we got, they're going to get Wonderful, isn't it? For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So Paul wraps up the plan for Israel and he says, man, it's like this Rubik's Cube thing. Whoa, someone solved this. This was all unsolved earlier, first service. You know, I'm terrible at these things because you got to think like five steps ahead, right? You can't just concentrate on one side or the other side because the minute you get this side right, it messes up that side. And so you got to know the whole plan And then as you're making moves, finally in the last move, everything comes together. And that's how God worked. And so Paul begins to worship. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Can you underline that in your Bible? Because there's going to be days you're going to say, I don't have any idea what God is doing. I don't know why God is doing this in my life. I don't understand this, how this fits into his plan. And you're right, you won't. You may never. But trust that it does. Because the depth of the riches and the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. I mean, who has known the mind of the Lord? 
Like you can ask God why, but you probably won't understand. You might come up with a solution or something you think is the reason why, but you may be wrong. You may fall way short because God's plans, he's putting so many things in place at one time. God is the ultimate multitasker, man. You think he's just doing this here, but he's doing this and that and the other thing over there and this over here. He's got 17 irons in the fire. And that's what Paul wants us to know. And that's what leads us to worship. That's what leads Paul to worship. He ends with verse 36 saying, for of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen.